He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even so, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in him and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, that is the renewal of the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have your word, that it is your word that is alive and powerful. It is your word that you use to uh, bring people to an understanding of salvation. It is your word that God the Holy Spirit uses to challenge us in our spiritual life. And we know that the promise of your word in Isaiah is that it will not go forth void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you have intended it. Fathers, we come together to focus on your word. We know that there are many around us, many in our families, many of our friends who just don't have the understanding of the importance of your word, that it is absolute truth and without error. And Father, we pray that we might be able to learn it so well that we are able to explain why that is true to those around us, to help them see and understand that if they construct their lives on any other foundation, then it is a weak foundation of shifting sand and will not stand the storms of life. So, Father, now as we study your word, may God the Holy Spirit open our eyes to understand what is here, the significance of it. For what we see here is your definition of priorities, your definition of what is truly significant and how that should impact how we live our lives and how we respond to the circumstances around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and today we're looking at the focus of our spiritual life and ministry. This is an application of the main theme here is that we see the focus on Paul's ministry, on Paul's calling from God as an apostle. And this is critical to understand this and its framework, its understanding. So last time we started, we just looked at the first verse because, as I pointed out, there's this break that occurs at the end of this verse. And so he starts a sentence, and then he stops abruptly, and then he is going to uh, what appears to be a, a distraction or he goes in a diversion, actually until you get down to verse, verse uh, uh, 13. And in 14, he starts it over again, and we understand this because he begins verse 1 with the same phrase that he will use again in verse 14. 
He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. That's how he starts. But there's something going on here because Paul doesn't just say, oh, I'm going to start this sentence and oops, I forgot something. I'm going to go somewhere else. There is a significance, as I pointed out last time, as to why he takes this side trip between verse 2 and uh, verse 14. He is specifically building this in terms of a framework. And that framework becomes obvious when you look at verse 13. He starts one for this reason. He talks about who he is as Paul. He talks about who he is as a, that he is a prisoner for at this time. He is in Rome as a prisoner. He was two years as a prisoner in, in, uh, in Israel at, uh, uh, at, at the palace of the procurator or the governor, uh, there at Caesarea by the sea. And then there's the ship, the travel by ship to Rome, and then while he is in Rome, he's a prisoner for two years. And he's there, and he states, as I pointed out last time, this is specifically related to his ministry to the Gentiles. Now, what we understand when we get to uh, verse 13 is that he knows that his audience, that the Ephesian believers are very concerned and distraught and discouraged by the fact that he has been in prison for so long. And so what he is writing between verse 1 and verse 13 is designed to encourage them and to strengthen them in their faith and their personal ministries. So when we come to verse 13, after this apparent diversion, which is not a diversion or digression at all, he concludes this Section by saying, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart, a word that means to be discouraged, to be down, to become uh, tired and weary in pursuing your spiritual growth and your mission as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to grow to maturity as a believer and to be a witness to all those who are around you. So he says, I ask that you do not become discouraged at my tribulations, at my adversities, at the problems that I'm having, which is being in prison all this time. He says, you may think this is uh, preventing God from accomplishing his purposes, but this is the way God is actually accomplishing his purposes. So how many times in our lives do we hit diversions or, or various things that come up like pandemics and quarantines and all of the other things that happen, political things and whatever that limit us from doing what we had planned to do and what we want to do, and yet God is still in control and he is still going to accomplish his purposes the way he originally intended, which may not be the way we intended. So we shouldn't get our eyes on our circumstances, and we should focus on carrying out within those circumstances that God has allowed to happen his mission, because that's his will that these things happen. That is, he has allowed this. And so when we look at this and we look at the structure here, what he begins to do in verse 2 is to talk to them about the the importance, the significance, the, the, the vital importance of what he is doing. Now let me, I want you to address, address your attention on this. When we look at a lot of things in the Bible at times, 
we don't catch the fact that what is really going on here is that God is telling us to get our heads out of our sin nature and to start putting them on God's plan and purpose. And see, this is exactly what happens. People get so concerned about the distractions that they forget that God allows those distractions uh, in order to uh, accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And so what happens when Paul starts this and he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, is he's bringing us back to his focal point that began in verse 11 of chapter 2. That phrase for this reason is is taking us back to everything he says from 11 to 22. And the primary thing that he is saying in 11 to 22 is that what makes the church so significant and distinctive and vital in God's plan is that it's accomplishing something new that in the church there is now a, a, a unity between Jew and Gentile. The Jew and Gentile are equal in the body of Christ. He calls it a new man. He calls it a new body and he calls it a new temple, all of which makes what's happening today in terms of God's work through the church distinct from every other age and dispensation in all of history. It means that you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in this church age, no matter what you may think your limitations are, no matter what you may think your failures are, that you are more significant than any believer at any other era, at any other time in history. That is, Paul says at the beginning of this epistle that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And most of us are living like we're paupers instead of having the wealth that God has given us. Remember, and we'll get to this within this passage today, that I have shown that this this epistle is divided into three sections. Chapters 1 through 3 is designed to help us understand the riches, the wealth that is ours in Christ. So the first section deals with our wealth in Christ. That is understanding that is foundational, is critical, is necessary in order to go to the second section, which is our walk in Christ how we live in Christ, and that's chapters 4 through 6, 9, and then in 6, 10 uh, to the end of the chapter, the focus is on our warfare. So it's our wealth, it's the foundation for our walk, and that is to enable us to be victorious in our in our warfare. So it's critical to understand Paul's specific relationship to the Gentiles. He was called by God as an apostle to the Gentiles. And I went through some of these verses last time in Acts 22:21, he uh, reminds or tells his hearers that God told him at the time of his salvation on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 that God commissioned him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, that didn't mean he couldn't take the gospel to the Jews. For everywhere he went, he went to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. But it meant that that was his primary mission. It, it, on the flip side, I've heard, and I pointed this out last time, I've heard people say, well, Paul was wrong to do that. No, no, you're wrong in the way you read the scripture. Peter was the, was the apostle to the Jews, 
But he was the first one God sent to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So just because God tells you that you're the missionary and you're the apostle to the Gentiles doesn't mean it's wrong to give the gospel to Jews, and neither is the flip side. That was Paul's primary area of responsibility. And what he is saying in this chapter is related to the function of his apostleship in relationship to the Gentiles. In Acts 26, 17, he, he is again rehearsing what God said, and God said that he would be uh, go to the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And in Galatians 2, 7 and 8, that Paul talking about his ministry, his commission, and Peter's commission, says that Peter was uh, committed to take the gospel to the circumcised, and that in verse 7, the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me. And at the end of verse 8, that he talks about how God was working effectively in him toward the Gentiles. Now, this Gentile ministry is critical for understanding what happens here in Ephesians 3, 2, and following. And then in Romans eleven thirteen, he specifically states that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2. He starts this. This is the break, remember. He goes through verse 1 reminding them that he's the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you all, for you Gentiles, and then he changes the topic. He just breaks. There's a pause, and he appears to go in a digression. But the digression is specifically designed to help understand his mission as an apostle to the Gentiles and why understanding his mission means that you have to understand the content of his message. And when you understand the content of his message, which is still the message that's committed to us centuries later, then that means it's going to change your attitude when you face roadblocks and diversions in your life that you didn't expect. So he's going to go from verse 2 down to verse 12, explaining why this is what should change your thinking. Now, the re- earlier I started to say this. The problem we have today is that uh, Christians don't understand how to think biblically. When you want to think biblically, you have to flush the psychobabble concepts the world has taught you out of your head. You have to flush out the sociological concepts the world has taught you. If you have uh, had a background or experience in many of the so-called evangelical churches of today, what you get is pablum psychobabble, and you don't get the word of God. I will give you an example. Uh, recently, I was aware of a pastor who began a sermon, uh, like many will, and he's talking about the fact that God created us with a lot of needs, but only God can fulfill those needs. Then he made his error. See, what are the needs that God, uh, that we have as a result of Adam's fall? We have a need for life because we're spiritually dead. We have a need for righteousness because we're unrighteous. We have a need to be justified because we are not justified. And that's your starting point. But what he did, he started with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, Maslow's not a believer, and he's just making stuff up out of thin air. 
And see, that's what happens. You get people come to churches, and they go to all these churches, and their sermons are all about these five things you need to know to have a happy marriage and six things you need to know to be a good parent and seven things you need to know so you can get out of bed and not be in a bad mood all day. And it's just garbage because they don't start with the text. And see, what Paul is saying is if you want to stop being discouraged about what's happening to me, what you need to understand is the mystery doctrine of the church age. And if you don't understand that, then you're just trying to solve your depression, your discouragement, your sorrow, and your frustration by human viewpoint means. And you don't understand how to think. And this is a problem so many people have because Paul, uh, he does it here. He does it again. A well-known passage is in First Thessalonians uh, chapter, uh, chapter 4 when he starts off and he talks about the fact that we are not to grieve like those who have no hope. And immediately he goes into what appears to uh, ignorant baby believers and a lot of people who don't trust the word of God. He goes into about an eight-verse digression explaining what will happen at the rapture and that, that when Christ returns in the clouds, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And then he says, remember, comfort one another with these words. What is what is the church culture say you should do when you comfort one another? You give them a hug, you talk to them, you tell them uh, a few nice things that may be biblically true. We know that your loved one is with the Lord in heaven, and we're comforted by that. But that's not nearly as deep as what Paul has in those verses from 4.13 down to the end of the chapter. I mean, that's some serious doctrine that's there. And yet nobody can comfort anybody with serious doctrine from Ephesians 3 or from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because they don't have any in their soul. They don't know how to take people through a doctrinal exposition to help them think biblically and, and to do it in language that the person they're talking to can understand. See, so often when we talk to unbelievers or we talk to baby believers, we use a lot of, uh, and not that it's incorrect, but they don't understand a lot of theological language because they go to churches that don't teach them anything. And so here we see Paul is everything he says from 2 down to 12 is profound, deep, explanation of what God has revealed to him about the distinctives of this dispensation. So he begins by saying, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. So he begins this with a way of stating a conditional sentence in the Greek that indicates, yes, if and it's true. You've heard this from me. You heard it from me because four years ago I spent two to three years with you in Ephesus and I taught you all of these things. So he's reminding them of what he taught them. And so he is saying, remember what I taught you. Now we're going to explain it some more so you haven't forgotten it and you will not be discouraged when you think about me being uh, in prison here in Rome because this is God's plan for my life and I'm not discouraged. I'm having a great ministry and a great opportunity to witness to all these uh, members of the Praetorian Guard that, that come around. So he says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. And then we see in verse 13, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations. 
for you, which is your glory. The point that this whole section, we're only going to go down to verse 7 in a summary this week. We'll drill down a little more next week. But, uh, and then we'll come back and do 8, 8 to 12. But his basic point here is if the Ephesians fully understood God's mission for Paul and fully understood God's message related to the mystery of what God was doing in this church age, that which has been revealed about the church age, then they would not be discouraged by his or anyone's apparently negative circumstances. And I can restate that. If you fully understood God's mission for Paul and his mission for us, then you would not be discouraged by his or anyone else's negative or discouraging circumstances because we understand what God's doing in this, in this church age. So we have to understand the importance of this, this mystery. When we come to verse 4, which emphasizes the, the centrality of this, Paul says, by referring to this, that is, by referring to what he has said in relation to uh, the mystery doctrine, he said, by referring to this, when you read, when you read what I have said here, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And the, the point that he is making here is if you understand what, I am, what, what is God is doing, if you understand the ministry he's given me, which is delegated to you, not the apostolic part, but continuing to teach what Paul wrote, if you understand that and my my ministry and the message, then you're going to realize that nothing about me being in prison is hindering God's work at all. And so there's nothing to be discouraged about. In fact, we should be uh, thankful for all these things. And that, in fact, is what he says to the Philippians in that epistle. So now when we get to these verses... Verse 2 through, actually goes all the way down to verse 13, but we're just going to focus on 2 through through 7 this morning. We have to answer certain questions. And part of the reason we have to address these questions is because there's some misunderstandings about the significance of a couple of phrases, especially in, the, in, this, uh, especially in this second verse. So when we read the second verse, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, we have to answer the question, uh, what is the meaning of the dispensation of the grace of God? Most of you are been well taught on dispensationalism, and often you have heard the current age also referred to as the dispensation of grace. Older dispensationalists sometimes called it the dispensation of grace rather than the dispensation of the church. By calling it the dispensation of grace, often that implied that there was no grace before the coming of Christ, and that's not true. Uh, there was a lot of grace, as we've studied many, many times in, in the Old Testament. But they looked at this whole line, the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, and they broke it in the wrong place. And they broke it, the dispensation of the grace of God, as if that's what we're talking about is the dispensation of the grace of God, and that's this this grace. So we have to understand this. We have to understand that in this kind of a context, What does the Apostle Paul mean by the grace of God? Often when we read the grace of God, the first thing we think of is saving grace. 
Then we think of the grace that God gives us in terms of our spiritual growth. We're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also think in terms of of, of dying grace and what God supplies at the end of our life in uh, comforting us with his word before he takes us home. But Paul often uses the term, this phrase, the grace of God, which was given to me in a totally different sense that doesn't fit any of those categories. But one of the problems we have historically is that we tend to atomize these verses. By that I mean we take each word, it's important to do this, we take each word and we do word studies on each word and then we put those results together as if that gives us the meaning of the sentence. And we had to do that for many, many years because what we have is is tools, concordances, and other word studies that are somewhat limited and have been limited until we get to... Um, until we get to the uh, computer age. Now, people were doing this kind of work, but it would take months or years to go through and trace phrases, and you really had to know the text to do all of this. And there were men that did this, but their work wasn't always available to, to everyone. Uh, and so what we have here are phrases that have the significance that's much, much more than the individual words. In other words, the meaning of the phrase is much greater than the sum of the parts. Okay, so we have to find out how does Paul use this phrase, the grace of God, in this context. And then in terms of looking at the um, at this phrase, we must decide if he's talking about the dispensation of the grace of God, as that's the phrase, the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me. Now, if the dispensation of the grace of God equals the church age dispensation, is what, what that would mean is that Paul is saying the dispensation of the church age has been given to me. Does that make sense? That's how that's been sort of traditionally understood by a lot of older dispensationalists. Or is it the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me, where the grace of God is what is given to him, not the dispensation. I'll show you. i got nice charts for that when we get there because it's already making your eyes glaze over. Question two is, are verses 3b through 4, as you see in the New King James translation, are those a parenthesis? Is that... Uh, a parenthetical or explanatory uh, statement. Uh, it would seem from the way they put that parenthesis in there that it's an explanatory explanation of the mystery that was made known to Paul. And then the third question we need to address is what exactly is the mystery doctrine which is explained in verses 5 through 7? Now, as I spent... Last week and this week, reading commentaries, reading through the text, reading through the Greek text over and over again, and looking at the different nuances and difficulties in analyzing the grammar, I thought, how in the world am I going to explain this without making everybody go to sleep while I'm explaining technicalities of grammar that that is far beyond most people's comprehension? And I decided, well, the best thing to do is like I read a book. Sometimes when I read a difficult book, uh, I 
and I'm having trouble capturing what the author is trying to get at at the beginning, I read his conclusion. And I've said this many times from here, that one of the things I learned before I went to seminary, that when you're going to go through a book, and I don't mean a fiction book, I don't mean a murder mystery where you go read the last chapter to find out who really did it. Uh, but when you're reading a, a, a difficult uh, book, hist- history or uh, theology or something like that, read the foreword. The foreword is there for a reason. He's not just there to take up a few pages of print. Explaining, usually the author will explain what it is that he's about. And then you read his first chapter or his introduction to see how he's setting things up, where he's going to go and what he's going to say. And then you go read the conclusion to find out what he has said and what he claims to have done. And then you go look at the table of contents. If it's a good, well-written table of contents, you can kind of follow how he lays out his argument as you go chapter by chapter. And then you just skim certain portions. And so often we have to go to the end of something to see where it's headed before we can fully grasp what's going on at the beginning. So so that's what I'm going to do. We're going to go to the last verse, and we're going to start at verse 7, then we're going to look at 3 through 6, and then we'll get back to 2. Okay, so this section is all about this mystery, this previously unrevealed truth that God has now revealed to the Apostle Paul. And that this is what he is communicating as part of what he identifies as the gospel at the end of verse 6. So he starts off saying, of which, okay, now let me read the whole verse, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. Have you seen that phrase before? Given to me by the effective working of his power. Now, when he says, of which, that takes us back to the last word of the previous verse, which is the gospel. And it is a, the noun here simply means the good news. That's what it describes. Now, sometimes this will get translated, or the verb will get translated as just simply preaching, but it's always that idea of evangelism, of preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But for Paul, he has a narrow sense of the gospel and a broad sense of the gospel. The narrow sense of the gospel, often when we hear something, we say, well, so-and-so got the gospel right. What they mean is they were accurate in telling people how to be justified, how to be saved so that they will spend eternity in heaven as opposed to eternity in the lake of fire. That's the narrow sense of the gospel. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But the broader use of the gospel is everything that flows from that. The significance of your new life in Christ, your new identity in Christ, and everything that God has given you as a new believer in this church age and what that means for your life and your ministry. That's how Paul's using the gospel here in this much more broader sense. I'm not going to use the phrase full gospel because that gets you into the charismatics and they abuse that term and so we can't use it anymore. But this is this, 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 um, shall we say, a complete gospel that's relating to the spiritual life as well. It's the pregnant sense of the word. 
And he says, of this gospel, of all that Christ has done for us, because the gospel that he's talking about here, as we'll see, is, is directly related to his understanding of this mystery that has been revealed to him. Of this gospel, I became a minister or a servant according, and here's our phrase, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me. That's the whole phrase. According to the gift of the grace of God which was given to me, by the effective working of his power. Now, what is the significance of this? This is what we have to figure out. We look at this whole phrase, the gift of the grace of God which was given to me, is almost identical to the phrase used in the second verse, where he said, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to you, given to me. Now, that's the whole phrase. So that phrase has to be understood as a technical phrase, that it is not the dispensation of grace break, the grace that was given to me, but it is the dispensation of, and then you have this whole linked concept, the grace of God which was given to me. Now, what in the world does that mean? When Paul is saying, this is the grace of God which was given to me. Well, just to give you sort of an overview schematic, this, these, this is verses 2 through 7. And you notice at verse 2, it starts with this phrase, the grace of God which was given to me, and it ends with the grace of God which was given to me. Now, we've studied this many times. This is what is called in in literature circles an inclusio. It's an inclusion. And so you have something stated at the beginning and something identical stated at the end, which tells you that everything in between is related to understanding that concept. It's like uh, in the Navy you would do bracketing uh, or, or in Army in the artillery where you have your target way out there and you fire your first shot and it goes long, and so you uh, adjust your uh, your range finder, and then you fire the next round and it goes short. Now you've zeroed in on your target and you adjust things a little bit more, and then the third round you just nail it. So this is a literary bracketing that, that identifies this as a solid uh, piece of work that needs to be walked through, taught through, as a whole before you start breaking it down into individual parts. So we have this phrase, and I'm going to give you four points on it. Frequently this phrase is used by Paul, not by anybody else, by Paul, in connection with the spiritual gifts that God gives. It's not talking about saving grace. It's not talking about spiritual life grace. It's not talking about uh, dying grace. It is talking about the giving of spiritual gifts to each believer and the ministry and function of those spiritual gifts. In some of these passages, it will use the word charismata. Remember the word for grace is charis. Well, when you add the suffix charismata, that means grace gifts. So that's one word that's used for spiritual gifts. In other verses, it uses the word for gift, which is uh, 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 Dorian. So here we have verse uh, in Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
So this is in the next chapter. And, and in that particular uh, context of Ephesians 4-7 uh, down through uh, verse uh, 11 he, or 12, he talks about the spiritual gifts of leadership, the leadership gifts that God gives to the church. Okay, and he lists four, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. We've gone through the details of, of that list. So he's just focusing on leadership gifts, and that's what he's talking about. But he says to each one of us, there are other spiritual gifts than the ones listed in Ephesians chapter 4. To each one of us, grace was given. What he means here is grace gifts are given. And that's what he's talking about when he uses this phrase, grace was given. And we see this in the way he uses it in Romans 12:6. He says, since we have gifts, the charismata, since we have spiritual gifts that differ according to the grace given, there's our phrase again, charis plus the same verb, didomi, uh, grace given to us. What is the grace given to us that he's talking about? He's talking about spiritual gifts. So that's the point. This phrase is used in connection with God's giving spiritual gifts. The second point, when Paul uses the phrase, grace given to me, the grace that's given has to do with spiritual gifts. We just saw that. In 1 Corinthians 3.10, he says, according to the grace of God which was given to me. He's not talking about saving grace. He's not talking about spiritual life grace. He's not talking about dying grace. He's talking about the spiritual gift of apostle that was given to him. So he's talking about the mission as an as one with the gift of apostle, and he's talking about the ministry, the message of the one who is given the gift of apostle. Okay, so when he says, according to the spiritual gift of apostleship and the ministry given to me as a wise master builder. So this is a technical phrase. It describes the mission as a, as having the gift of apostle and the message of the one who is given the gift of apostle. He does the same thing in Romans 12.3. I didn't highlight the verse here. For through the grace given to me. What's he saying? Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. What's he mean by the grace given to me? It's his gift of apostleship. But he's saying is on the authority of being an apostle, I'm telling you this. So he's appealing to his spiritual office and gift. And he says this is the, uh, on that, on the basis of that authority, I'm telling you to do this. So we come to Ephesians 3, 7, and 8. Now, we're going to end with 7 today, but 8 uses the same phrase. So there Paul says, of which, that is the gospel, I was made a minister according to, here's the phrase, the gift of God's grace which was given to me. I was made a minister according to the commissioning as an apostle with a mission and a message. So those two ideas come together, with the mission and the message. Uh, The gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. So see, the grace that is given 
is related to the message to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now, that's that's another really important phrase there because this takes us back to the whole uh, significance and message of what Paul is saying in Ephesians. Remember the breakdown? The first three chapters are talking about the riches of Christ. And since it's a singular in the uh, in the Greek, I, I've translated with a singular English noun, wealth, because of the wealth that we have, and that's going to be the foundation for our walk. So the grace that's given to Paul is the gift of being an apostle. And that mission that was given to him was to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now, I've got scripture references there, but in Ephesians 1, 7, he says, in him we have redemption through his blood according to the riches of his grace. In Ephesians 1, 18, he talks about the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Then in Ephesians 2, 7, In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. And now in 3.8, he mentions the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then in Ephesians 3.16, he will mention the riches of his glory. After we get out of chapter 3, he doesn't mention the wealth again. That's why that's the theme of these these first three chapters, the wealth of Christ, and that's what he's t- preaching. It's not simply believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You're justified by faith alone. That's just the starting point. Believing that is how we get regenerated. But what we get with regeneration is we're blessed with every spiritual blessing, and we have the wealth of Christ at our disposal. That's what he's, That's his message. Now, how, that's different from anything that, that we've learned from Genesis through Malachi, because it's not in the Old Testament. So what we learned, point three on this phrase, is that the mission God gave to Paul as an apostle was to proclaim the mystery doctrine of the church. Jew and Gentile, this is the mystery doctrine, that Jew and Gentile are now united together as one new man, one new body, and one new temple. He's saying that you've got to understand this, otherwise you're going to be discouraged and down in the dumps whenever anything goes not according to your plan. Because this is God's plan, and if you're going to have stability and tranquility and joy in life, you've got to orient your thinking to God's plan and purpose and not your plan and purpose. And so we see this, that in three eight, he says that his mission is to preach the good news to the Gentiles, and the good news is the unsearchable riches of Christ. Those riches of Christ have to do with those blessings we have in Christ, which is part of that whole package that he calls the mystery. Now, mystery doesn't mean something that you have to guess at or something you have to go through a lot of cryptic clues to discover. In, in Greek, the word mystery meant previously unrevealed truth. And we'll look at that in detail in a minute. Now, in verse 9, he says that his mission is also to reveal all that is the dispensation of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. Now, what he says there is an expansion on what he says in in verses 5 and 6. 
So we're not going to get into understanding verse 9 for, for a while. So our conclusion is the phrase, the grace given to me refers to Paul's apostolic gift, his office, his mission, and his apostolic function, his message. So it's his mission and his message. Now, we don't have the same mission, but we have the same message. We don't have apostolic authority, but because of his apostolic authority, we have the same message. So Paul recognizes that his designated mission is to take this good news to the Gentiles, that there was a barrier between you and the Jews before the cross. Now that barrier between you and the Jews is gone. The barrier between humanity and God is gone. And if you trust in Christ, now Jew and Gentile are united together in a new body. They're united together as a new man. They're united together as a new temple. So Paul's designated mission as the apostle to the Gentiles is this message that that barrier is gone. Now, this takes us back. We've looked at seven. Now we're going to go back to three through six and just hit a couple of high points. In verse 3, we read how that by revelation, he, that is, by revelation, God made known to me the mystery. And as I'm going to show in the next slide, mystery means previously unrevealed truth. God made known to me the mystery. And then he says, as I have briefly written already. I think that's just referring back to what he said at the end of chapter 2. We'll get into all of that next week. As we come back and look at other aspects I'm not touching on today. In verse 5, he ex- continues this thought. He says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. Now, there's your definition of mystery. Mystery is not something you're guessing at. It's not something cryptic and hidden from us now. It is that which was hidden previously. In other ages, it was not made known to men. That's an absolute statement. It wasn't even hinted at in the Old Testament. Uh, In other ages, it was not made known to the sons of men. And then we have an important phrase we have to understand, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. But the purpose is, this is the content of the message, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. Now, it's interesting in the Greek. It's hard to translate this into English. I'm going to try to do it in a minute. But each of these terms begins with the Hebrew preposition soon, which means together with. So when we put sounds together, we have a soon phonic, a symphony. But in English, we don't like to put the, it's hard to say the N before P, so we change it from an N to an M. But we have a symphony. We, if we are identifying with somebody with their emotions, then we have soon pathos, sympathy. And again, the N changes to an M because we don't like to say soon, put an N, we can't pronounce an N before a P, so we change it to an M. And, and so each of these words here, for fellow heirs, same body, and partakers, is a one word in the Greek, and they all start with the word soon, but it's hard to get that in English, it should be fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers. That's the best way to put it so you get that emphasis, but translations don't do that. So in verse 3, what Paul says is how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. So the word for revelation is on the left. It's the word apocalypsis, 
Uh, you have the word in English, apocalyptic, which sounds like it's something horrible and terrible, but apocalypsis just means to reveal something. Because the book of Revelation, apocalypsis, at the end, it has to do with all the judgments. At the end, the word came to mean something bad and horrible. But uh, it means the unveiling, the disclosure, the revealing of new information. That by disclosure, by revealing, he, God, made known to me the mystery. And mystery means simply previously unrevealed information. Now, in verse 5, he says which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. But the next phrase gets misinterpreted because some will look at it and say, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit, and that sees, well, you know, it was revealed partially in the Old Testament and we get more of it now. But that's a misinterpretation of this comparative adjective um, as. As can it be expressing a comparative of degree or a comparative of a comparison of description. So if I I say, well, my cake is not as good as yours, that tells me that I have cake or I made a cake, but it's not as good as your cake. Your there's a difference of degree between the two statements. And so people who read this and read it as a comparison of degree says, well, it's revealed partially in the Old Testament, but nowhere in the Old Testament is there anything like what is said in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, that God is going to wipe out the barrier between Jew and Gentile, join them together as joint heirs in Christ, and build of them a new man, a new body, and a new temple. Nothing like that in the Old Testament. What you have, though, is the other way in which as is used is a comparison of description. So you're talking about one person who's a doctor and saying she's not a teacher as he is. You're not saying that he's partially a teacher. He's a doctor. She's a teacher. He's not a teacher like she is. He's different. Everybody else in the group's teachers, but he's a doctor. Peter uses it this way in Acts 2.15 when the Jews who heard the disciples speaking in languages they hadn't learned said, ah, oh, these men are drunk. And Peter says, no, these men are not drunk as you suppose. Now, if you're thinking about a comparison of degree, then Peter would be saying they're not as drunk as you think they are. Okay, they're a little drunk. They're not that drunk. But if it's a comparison of description, he's saying they're not drunk at all. You're misidentifying what's going on here. So that's what we have here is that uh, the first phrase in our, our clause in Ephesians 3.5 tells us that in other ages this wasn't made known at all. And so I would translate verse 5, uh, the second, as which in previous ages was not made known to the human race but now has been revealed to his holy, that is, New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets by the Spirit. It only comes through the New... It's the, the, if it was prophets and apostles, prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, then that would give us an Old Testament first, then New Testament, but it's apostles. See, most of the New Testament was written by apostles, some books were likely written by those who had the gift of prophecy, Luke and the writer of Hebrews. Uh, so those were the revelatory gifts operational in the early church. And the purpose of proclaiming this mystery doctrine is that the Gentiles 
will understand their identity. They're joint heirs. They're in the same body, fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's the message. That's what is to give the Ephesian believers comfort and not be discouraged by the fact that Paul's in prison. Now, I'm going to suggest, now I may be way off here, but I'm going to suggest that when you face people who are down and out and discouraged, this wasn't the first thing you thought of. I don't think it made your list at all. But this is what Paul is saying. This is how you are to encourage people who are discouraged because they're looking at, oh, the world's in a mess. We're living in all this chaos. We've got this pandemic going on. The last thing in the world that came to your mind was these people need to understand the mystery doctrine of the church age. Now, I may be wrong, but I'm just guessing, okay? But that's how you think if you're thinking biblically. So now we go back to Ephesians 3.2. Paul is saying, is indeed, if indeed, and you have, you have heard of the, and now we understand that this should be translated, the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me. And the phrase, the grace of God which was given to me, is talking about Paul's apostolic commission, his mission, and his message. That is what's foundational to this dispensation. So we do get there, but it's a long way around the a barn to get get back to that. So when we look at this phrase, we have the phrase, the dispensation of the grace of God. And then we have the relative clause, which was given to me. Now, the way many people read this is that what Paul is talking about is the dispensation which was given to him. But you have these two other genitive phrases there, of the grace and of God. So the grace is from God, but the dispensation is related to something different. So we have the, and I think we translate the word dispensation as administration. Another sense of the word is dispensing something. So this isn't talking about the title for the church age as the dispensation of grace. This is talking about Paul's mission as an apostle is he is to be administrating or dispensing the ministry and the mission and the message that was given to him. And that is to proclaim the gospel, which which in this context includes the mystery that Jew and Gentile are now united together in the body of Christ as one new man, one new body, one new temple. So it is the grace of God which was given to me that is the administration of the office and the function of apostleship that was given to Paul, and his focus is on communicating this previously unrevealed information. So in terms of the questions I asked at the beginning, what is the meaning of the dispensation of the grace of God? That means the dispensing of Paul's apostolic gift and ministry and his message. What's the significance of the phrase grace of God? It refers to Paul's gift as an apostle, and that involves his mission and his message. And then second, I said, are verses 3b through 4 parentheses, and the answer would be no, and we'll get into that when we come back through the passage next week. And then third, what is the mystery doctrine made known to Paul? It is the union of Jew and Gentile in one new band, one new body, and one new temple.
So his focal point for emphasis is in verse 4. He says, by which, talking about this mystery, when you read, when you read my explanation of it, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ so that you can encourage people and they won't be discouraged. Now, you never saw that application coming, did you? Okay. So Paul's mission and ours, first, is to teach about the new revelation, which is the characteristic of the, of the new dispensation. And I would bet that I know most of you, because you've heard me and you've heard a few others, but many people have never once in a life of seven or eight decades ever heard a message on the mystery doctrine of the church age. But yet Paul says this is integral and foundational to understanding your identity in Christ and how to avoid being discouraged by the circumstances of life. Second, understanding what God is doing in the church age will transform your response to adversity. It's fundamentally says, this is the key, so you won't get discouraged because you see me in jail. Third, we realize that God has a plan and is working out that plan by bringing untold millions of Gentiles and Jews into this new man, this new body, and this new temple. So what we have to understand more than anything else is the significance of that new man, new body, new temple, which is the church universal. Why is the church, the body of Christ, so important? And fourth, understanding our role in that, in the church universal, in the body of Christ, understanding our role should transform our thinking about why we are here and what God is doing through us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to go through this passage to have our understanding of who we are and what our ministry and mission should be in this church age expanded. Father, too often we have such superficial concepts of our spiritual life or our spiritual ministry. Too often people think, well, I don't know enough and I don't understand enough and I just need to, need to fill up three or four more notebooks with notes and then maybe I can do something. And yet we already have everything. We just need to begin to use it and to grow. That's how we grow is by learning to use it, learning we make mistakes, we grow by the mistakes, you work in our lives, and you accomplish incredible things. Father, we pray that we might be strongly encouraged by what we have learned, for that is its purpose, that despite the pandemic, despite the negatives around us, despite the election and all the noise related to the election, that you're still in control, everything is, is going according to your plan, and we need to just relax, align ourselves with it, and keep about our mission, which is to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross, and if people believe, to help them understand what a transformation has taken place in their life, that they have a new identity, a new mission, and a new message. And, Father, we pray that you would help Anyone who's listening today who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, uh, help them understand the gospel if they've never trusted in Christ. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to change your life. You don't have to uh, join any particular group. You just have to trust in Christ as your Savior, to believe that he died for you. He bore in his own body on the tree our sins, 
that by trusting in him we have complete and total forgiveness, the slate's wiped clean, and we have eternal life and are declared eternally justified before you. Make that clear to those who listen, Father. Encourage us with your word. In Christ's name, amen.